This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. So we've got a great guest today, and this topic is more than timely. So why don't we get right into it? Yeah, joining us this afternoon from his home in Arlington, Virginia, is Colonel Tom Greenwood, U.S. Marine Corps retired. He is the author of the October Proceedings article that starts on page 60 and 61 of the print magazine, if you have it with you. Uh, The article is titled, The Elusive Quest for Victory in War. I'll just do a quick intro uh, uh, or background of Colonel Greenwood. He's a research staff member at the Institute for Defense Analysis, a federally funded research and development center. It works primarily with the Department of Defense. He was an infantryman who commanded the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit He served as the director of the Marine Corps Command and Staff College, and he survived assignments in the Pentagon and on the National Security Staff. Uh, Colonel Greenwood, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Thanks for being on and for writing for Proceedings. Well, thank you for having me, and it's a real pleasure to join you all today in this podcast. Well, this is, as Ward said, this is timely, uh, and our our readers and our listeners will will recognize a lot of the themes uh, because of the news in late August and early September from Afghanistan is the U.S. hastily pulled out and pulled out citizens and and uh, Afghans who had supported us and and it really I think you know shook a lot of people a lot of service members uh, at at a at, at a visceral level just kind of watching 20 years end the way that it did. Um, your article starts off by saying uh, fighting insurgents and terrorists for two decades has made it difficult for the U.S. military to transition from thinking about regional wars amongst people to potential conflict between major nuclear powers. This challenge is exacerbated by fading Cold War memories and having to cope with COVID-19 at the same time global supremacy is being challenged by China and to a lesser degree Russia. Tom, what, what made you write this article? What, what, you know, because this, this article was written before uh, the Afghanistan pullout. But it was certainly timely for us, um, and we, we published it as soon as we could as we were watching events uh, in the news. But what, what spurred you to write it? Well, so there were, there were three reasons. First of all, uh, you know, my father was a Marine in, uh, in Vietnam and uh, talked about the inconclusiveness of that war and, uh, and really how um, uh, we uh, confused, uh, I think, uh, uh, the political goals and objectives that we were after, uh, with the military means that we were being used, that we that we were pursuing in terms of uh, uh, mixing up ends, ways, and means, right? Um, and a good example of what happens when when one confuses that is that iconic conversation that occurred after the war between a U.S. Army colonel 
and a North Vietnamese colonel. And the American colonel said, you know, you never defeated us on the battlefield. Um, and after pausing for a, a few minutes, the, the North Vietnamese colonel said, that may be so, but it's, it's also irrelevant. Um, the other reason that I was motivated to write this article was uh, during my 31-year career, uh, I became increasingly aware that officers were discussing the character of war using sports metaphors like fourth and one, ninth inning, victory, defeat, winning and losing. And that's all language that we know from Super Bowls and, and the World Series. But as we all know, war is not sport. And I think I think that kind of language trivializes uh, mankind's you know hor horrific one of its most horrific undertakings. It also creates strategic incoherence and confuses people that uh, just by defeating one's adversary in battle, that's the same as as achieving the nation's policy goals. Um, and I think um, I think this leads me to you know kind of my second insight which is kind of the paradox of military power. And that is, it's really difficult, I believe, for a nation to achieve its policy objectives if, the armed, if its armed forces suffer successive military reversals and defeats during a campaign. But the converse is not true. And, and here's the real paradox. And that is that defeating one's enemy does not automatically create policy success that necessarily results in a, in a better peace. And I think lastly, uh, as you mentioned at the outset, after 20 years of fighting insurgents and terrorists, we are now competing with major powers who possess nuclear arsenals. And so I believe that military planners who talk about a theory of victory in this context are really overlooking a fundamental reason why nations acquire nuclear weapons in the first place. And that's to inoculate themselves against regime change avoid existential defeat, and really deprive their adversary, adversary of, of achieving victory. So speaking of victory, Tom, early on you sort of parse out that word, and it's sort of interesting to us because one of our taglines and the way we end every show is by saying victory begins at the Naval Institute. Um, I found that passage very interesting. Um, so Talk about what you what you were trying to say or what you did say in in that part of the article. Well, uh, I think uh, by embracing the th a theory of success and instead of a theory of victory, it allows military planners a little more uh, maneuver room in terms of uh, planning a campaign and, and contemplating use of uh, of military force. Uh, and again, the, the overriding theme of the article here is that is that military force is a tool and an instrument and not an end in itself. And and when we confuse those, which I think using the, the terminology theory of victory makes it easier for policymakers and planners to confuse confuse ends, ways and means by by using the term victory. Um, I think that that makes the task harder. One thing I didn't put in the article that I regret was uh, was a, was a really superb quote uh, from from 1957 from Dr. Henry Kissinger. <laughs> he says the goal of war can no longer be military victory, strictly speaking, but the attainment of certain specific political conditions that are fully understood by the opponent. And strategic doctrine must never lose sight of the fact that its purpose is to affect the will of the enemy, not to not to destroy them. 
And so, um, I, I have that quote in the, in the article from Gideon Rose and it, it's human nature that, you know, once, once you commit lies and treasure to, to combat that you want to see a, a profitable outcome from, for that investment. But as the quote in the article from Rose suggests, we get, we get so caught up in that outcome, um, which is largely tactical and operational that, that we forget what it's trying to, the purpose that they, the use of force is trying to serve. So in the case of Afghanistan, the, the, obviously the standard of a victory was a bar that was too high for that particular campaign. Well, I, I, as you mentioned at the outset, when I wrote this article nine months ago, um, our, our exit strategy from uh, Afghanistan uh, was uh, really was, was, was unknown. And uh, uh, although there was uh, policy uh, pronouncements that, you know, we weren't going to leave a lot of troops in, in uh, Afghanistan. I certainly didn't know that publication of my article would coincide with the evacuation of Kabul. But um, I, I think I think a real takeaway from our experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan are the necessity of doing two things. One is uh, having policymakers and leaders that set political that set realistic and attainable political objectives. Number one and number two, that military leaders then design design operations, military operations that very much support the attainment of those goals. And and there's a linkage there between those two. Uh, I started off, I think, talking about uh, the Vietnam War and how you know, we 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 realized towards the end of that that conflict that I, I think we realized that that we were excessively using excessive firepower in many circumstances, not all, but in many circumstances that proved detrimental to winning the hearts and minds of the people. So there is, there is a, a, a huge premium on designing realistic political or having political objectives that are uh, realistic and attainable uh, and then tailoring the use of military force to achieve those. I, I mentioned in the article, um, you know, Philip Gordon's book, uh, where he mentions he talks about five uh, efforts at regime change, and I and I think that gets to the point of of setting having realistic political goals and and tailoring the military means to meet those goals. Um, and I think in many cases we overestimated the utility of, of military force and underestimated. Uh, you know the, the cost of uh, of achieving our our objectives in those various countries that he talks about. Tom, like every great strategy article, um, this one of course mentions Clausewitz. But uh, just before your your Clausewitz quote, you've got um, a couple of quotes from uh, former Under Secretary of Defense Fred Eklay. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, who uh, wrote a book in 1971 called "Every War Must End." And uh, he wrote, when the end does come, it typically involves reaching agreement with former enemies over an admixture of ceasefires, negotiated settlements, territorial concessions, prisoner negotiations and repatriations, unilateral withdrawals and the like. Um, so not surprisingly, the cost to the victor frequently un uh, determines the severity of the post-war environment. So you know, this idea that we, we, we got used to, I guess, uh, drawn to at the end of World War II that there was total victory with, you know, the, the Missouri-style surrender uh, in, in Tokyo Harbor. 
that that's really a, a historical anomaly, correct? Yes, I, I think it is, and and that that's a um, I think you you hit you make that your comments there. Uh, I think emphasize that very clearly, and that and that's what I was trying to get at. Um, and if we think about some of the recent uh, uh, interventions that we've been involved in, uh, we we can think back to the the, the Balkans and uh, our efforts uh, to get rid of Milosevic and you know in in, in Serbia. And, um, you know, that was that required a very lengthy air campaign uh, that finally uh, resulted in a negotiated settlement at, you know, the Dayton agreement out in, in Dayton, Ohio. Um, I, I can think of our withdrawal from Somalia and, um, you know, some of the, our efforts, even in our own hemisphere in Haiti. And uh, the, these are are, are very uh, messy uh, sort of conflict terminations. And each one's unique and has its own has its own personality, but it's it's not this sort of decisive, uh, unambiguous victory that that I think you get with uh, we would that we had at the end of World War II, uh, largely because it was total war and a war of annihilation. And you know what we've learned since then is that in limited wars, wars that are limited both in their political objectives and in the in the means that are used the ways and means that are used to achieve those political objectives um it, it's much less uh, black and white and so it, it doesn't have the it, it doesn't have the same um it doesn't resonate with the same uh, feelings that i think we retrospectively look back on the, the end of world war ii and the two quotes in the article uh from the marine corps doctrinal publication and, and the army publication the marine corps one i think captures that nicely when it says you know victory is an emotional laden word and and when you're trying to accomplish limited military and political aims that don't really seem to to, to be adequately described by that term victory um it it, it you know it, it's not it's not a, it's just not good terminology and and we're involved in a lot of these uh, interventions and, and military operations around the globe now, spanning from, you know, counterterrorism to humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, embassy evacuations, um, you know, what we did in, the, in, in, in Bosnia and Kosovo, um, you know, where we're, inter we're intervening between warring factions. Um, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't feel like victory, even when we, when we do positive things on the ground with our forces that actually do result in the attainment of some of our political goals. It doesn't feel like victory. So it requires kind of a different mindset. And I think that's that's one of the other themes that I'm trying to get at in this article is is we, we need sort of the, the, the correct mental frame uh, or framework for the limited wars that we're, we're, we have been and we're going to continue, I think, to be in certainly for the remainder of this century. The other thing that jumped out at me, Tom, is uh, I remember watching Walter Cronkite in the late 60s. My dad was a Marine as well, an attack pilot. And you mentioned metrics like body counts and things like that as a measure of success. And I know in Afghanistan we used SIGACs, significant activities, trending up or down. And when I was embedded there in 2010 with the 101st Airborne, General Rodriguez was briefing that SIGACs were down as if that was an indication that we were winning, right? And so um, what what would be a better way to go about the business of limited warfare if not those kinds of metrics? 
Well, uh, it's a great question. And I think, uh, first of all, it gets at sort of a, just an inherent difficulty uh, across all conflicts in terms of measuring progress. Now, in in, lar- in big conventional wars where, where we're seizing uh, territory and, and from an enemy force and, and occupying territory, um, you know, it's natural that people are going to look at you know, progress of, of our intervening forces moving across hostile territory, uh, much like we did when we were um, fighting uh, at the end of World War II, or in World War II on, in Africa during Operation Torch, or when we did, the, you know, the Normandy landing and, and the march to Berlin. Um, but I think, I think, you know, those kinds of conflicts are, are a relic of the past, I think. And, and so we're, we're involved in these wars that uh, Sir Rupert Smith, General Rupert Smith from the UK, wrote a book on this, you know, War Amongst the People. And um, and so it's going to, I think you have to design a, a totally different set of metrics, particularly if it is involved in securing the population from uh, other insurgents or, you know, uh, a, a third party, a predatory or a violent, hostile third party. Um, and, uh, so, uh, you, you're, you're talking about protecting the people and, and that's really not a function of how much firepower you apply or, or casualty ratios. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be, uh, a, a complexion. It's going to be made up of, of different variables and, and whether it be, um, you know, the, the normal trade and commerce, whether it be, uh, children still get to go to schools, whether it be, you know, the function, the government is able to function, the ministries are able to function and, and operate in an, in an efficient fashion and deliver uh, public services to the people. I mean, I think it's possible to, de- to design a, a fairly comprehensive list of, of socioeconomic political factors. If you're, if you're in a, a counterinsurgency or if you're, um, you know, if your mission is, is nation building. Um, so, uh, but it, it, even though they're different than uh, the metrics that we, we saw in, in World War II, uh, I think they're, they're no less easy to design. And uh, uh, so a good deal of skepticism needs to be applied to the idea that, you know, conflict can be quantified and uh, progress can be measured always uh, uh, there's a lot of subjectivity, as you know, to to war. And uh, at the end of the day, it's it's a very much a, a human enterprise where uh, one adversary is trying to impose his or her will on on the opposing commander and the opposing forces. So, um, and if you if you introduce uh, a host nation population uh, in in countries as diverse as Afghanistan and Iraq, where you have not only the tribal factor, but, uh, you know, religious differences between various sects, uh, it, it becomes quite a challenge. Tom, the other uh, part of the context of your article that, you know, you wrote against um, the backdrop of great power competition going on these days. And towards the end of your article, you, you talk about deterrence dynamics a bit. And I'll just read a little bit. Today's policymakers face three geostrategic imperatives. First, to avoid a major conventional war with China and Russia. Second, to identify opportunities to cease hostilities while preserving U.S. national interests should conflict occur. 
Those are frequently called off-ramps. And third, most important, to reduce potential catalysts for escalation that could motivate adversaries to cross the nuclear threshold first. So theory of victory hyperbole clashes with all three. Talk about how it clashes. Well, I think uh, theory of victory, uh, inherent in in that phrase, in my view, my opinion is that it connotes a zero-sum approach, which I argue works against deterrence dynamics. To me, it implies that another nuclear adversary can be forced, you know, to surrender or capitulate without crossing the nuclear threshold, which I I think is very unrealistic expectation. Uh, Or if the other side uses nuclear weapons, it's not going to employ them as effectively the United States. And and really at the heart of this of this part of the article, what what I think is flawed about a cost imposition strategy that tries to punish, you know, an enemy with increasing levels of pain is that it really kind of overlooks uh, the primary incentive that that dissuades great powers from crossing a nuclear threshold in the first place. And that is uh, confidence that they can achieve an acceptable outcome to the ongoing conventional conflict without using weapons of mass destruction. Um, and so uh, they have to have a belief that it's possible for them to find an off-ramp and return to some sort of form of status quo ante. And so if the rhetoric, if the rhetoric coming out of the United States or, or any, major, any one of the major nuclear adversaries is, um, I'm not seeking a negotiated settlement or I'm not seeking uh, something less than, than total total victory or, or theory of victory, um, I think it very much signals an intent to double down or win. And ultimately, I, I argue that pushes deterrence dynamics in an unhelpful direction that can lead to inadvertent escalation. Um, you know, I wrote, I wrote elsewhere another article uh, about a year ago, and I, and I, and I cited uh, nuclear strategist John Warden and uh, I think he's correct when he when he says that two nuclear armed adversaries uh, are going to quickly uh, it's going to quickly their conventional war is going to quickly evolve into a competition over the limits of violence. That's that's his quote competition over the limits of violence. In other words, each side is going to be imposing limits on itself because it's going to be trying to convince the, the opposite adversary that um, it's serious about conflict termination. Um, And um, in lieu of trying to achieve uh, escalation dominance, uh, uh, Warden argues that they're actually going to be sort of racing towards an off-ramp that requires them to convince their adversary that they're actually sincere about this uh, and this isn't some sort of ruse or, you know, deception. Um, So that's all, I think, pretty counterintuitive. Uh, to many uh, strategists and uh, and and policymakers today, it, 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 it's it, that's a, a hard concept, I think, to to kind of wrap your head around. So early in the article, you talk about the Thucydides trap. In fact, Bill, I think the last time I heard that term was when the Australian Prime Minister, former Australian Prime Minister, who spoke at our history conference, was talking about the Thucydides trap and China. That was three years ago. Three years ago. Yep. Um, and uh, so in the context of what you're talking about, because I, I agree as we talk about 
high-end fights against two nuclear powers. That's, that's let's just say, an unlikely scenario. I think it's more productive to talk about conflicts with proxies or short of that. And that's where I think what you're getting into here is is relevant and, and potentially um, in play. So what is our version of the Thucydides trap right now? China is a rising power and the United States uh, relative to China is perceived as a declining power. And uh, of course, the, the term comes from, you know, the fifth century uh, Athenian historian Thucydides was writing about the Peloponnesian War. And at that time, Athens was the rising power and challenging Sparta that was the ruling hegemon and, and the most powerful Hellenic state at that time. Um, a couple, a couple quick uh, interesting factoids here is, uh, so Harvard's professor Graham Allison has written kind of extensively on the Thucydides trap, both in the uh, Atlantic Monthly and in, his, in a separate book called The Destined for War. He also started a project at Harvard that examined, you know, 16 historical case studies over 500 period, 500 year period. And, and that project concluded that, you know, for, and only in only four cases, was war avoided. Um, but I want to carefully point out that Allison doesn't argue that war between a rising China and a declining United States is inevitable. He just wants he just wants everybody to be clear that it's certainly possible. And um, he, he explained it, I think, very nicely when he said that rising powers, in this case, we're talking about China, uh, rising powers have a sense of entitlement they have a sense of importance and they have a demand for a greater say and sway in, in the in the international in the international community. Um, and um, um, and on, on one hand, on the other hand, uh, th- there's fear and insecurity and a determination to defend the status quo uh, on the part of the on the part of the established power, uh, the United, in this case, United States. And, and so uh, th- this this creates tension and in, in, in geopolitical instability. And if the rising power and the hegemonic power are both nuclear states, as they are in this case, then, you know, obviously the potential cost of going to war, uh, you know, increases, increases exponentially. Um, so but just to be clear, um, you know, China faces enormous headwinds that will continue to challenge its rise in terms of it declining population, a shrinking labor force, real estate bubble, you know, environmental degradation and and its dependence on, you know, foreign trade and, and ex- exports and imports. So uh, I'm not uh, saying I, I want to. So it's not and I want to be very clear on this. Is I, I, it's not inevitable that China will displace the United States as a leading global power. Um, and uh, I'm certainly not trying to be per- predictive here. But uh, just to conclude this part of the discussion, um, so you know, what exactly would a theory of success uh, vis-a-vis China, uh, what would that consist of? I and mean, I think that's a fair question. And you know, I find uh, Rush Doshi's um, approach to this to that question pretty compelling. He just published. He's the senior director for China at the National Security Council now, uh, and just published uh, a, a very thoughtful book called The Long Game. China's grand strategy to place, displace American order. And, and, and he, he posits that um, 
that there should be a two-track strategy that include that involves, on the one hand, uh, trying to blunt uh, China's expansionism at the same time, uh, uh, build uh, build up U.S. Western institutions, capabilities, and capacities that are key foundations to U.S. strength. So um, uh, it's, I think it's a you know it's 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 he it's a it's a very good read and 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 I think he he uh, he he gets after this idea that it doesn't have to like like Allison um, the competition between uh, the rising China and a declining United States does not have to end up in war. So he I think he has sort of the same view of the Thucydides trap that uh, uh, Professor Graham Allison has. Tom, I want to uh, just foot stomp. The, probably what for me is the biggest takeaway from this conversation and from your article is the the idea of replacing a theory of victory in the mindset of mili- U.S. military personnel and, and leaders uh, and, and even the American body politic, I would say, that we tend to think of wars that we're going to win the war and that winning is going to look like, you know, Iraq in 1991 or Tokyo Harbor, USS Missouri in 1945, and replace that with a theory of success. So the, the military is not about necessarily winning as it is about succeeding. And that succeeding is a whole of government effort. What does the post-war world look like? Is it more favorable to the U.S. and, and our allies' goals, or is it more favorable to our ever en- enemies or adversaries' goals. And you, um, you you quote here from a guy named Jeffrey Miser, which who came up and advocated for this theory of success framework. And the quote is, it encourages creative thinking while keeping the strategist rooted in the process of causal analysis. It brings assumptions to light and forces strategists to clarify exactly how they plan to cause the desired end state to occur. So that end state is a more... Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't look like, you, you know, the, t- the Times Square victory down, um, you know, the center of New York City. It looks like, you know, perhaps, uh, and, and you used an example a little bit earlier about uh, the Balkans, right, that, that that was messy and it was very political. There was an application of military force, but it didn't feel like, you know, 1945 victory. It felt more like we got where we needed to go. Um, and and so the military and the alliance succeeded there, if not if if they weren't victorious. Um, am, am I am I paraphrasing that? Am I taking away the right lesson? Because that's that's what it feels like to me as I read this and have this conversation with you, which is fascinating to me. Well, no, you, I, I think you, you you have it exactly right. And uh, the Jeffrey Miser quote uh, links very well, I think. Uh, at least my my hope is that it, for readers that that quote by Jeff links over to at the end of the article I discuss this idea of a, of a pre-mortem and I introduce uh, the idea of project pre-mortem that a research psychologist Gary Klein uh, is the father of this approach and he uses this with fortune 500 companies and with certain elements within our US military now some of the some of the, the services and uh, are, have, have are applying his technique. And basically, what it is is uh, you, you take any plan that's uh, designed for future implementation, and you assume that it fails catastrophically. 
and the, the team members or the, the people assembled around the table, they have to describe why and, and, and explain why it could or, or did fail catastrophically. And what, what this then sets up is a discussion on potential mitigation strategies and what sort of risk factors are associated with, with, with those uh, failure points. And I think what this allows senior leaders to do when they get briefed is to, is to say, hey, I, I don't think these mitigation measures uh, are, are potentially, uh, could be as potentially as effective as they should be, and the risk factors remain unacceptably high. And I think this plan is flawed and it needs to be scrapped, and you guys need to go back to the drawing board and a new approach needs to be pursued. Um, the, the idea here is that the plan is fully vetted and, uh, and efforts are made to strengthen it before it's implemented and it fails miserably. And um, I, I've, I've used this a couple of times, you know, in my work. Uh, and I think it's a fairly effective technique for avoiding, you know, all, all the pitfalls that planners and, 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 and strategists you know, face, whether it be groupthink, you know, uh, hidden, untested hypothesis, um, domineering bosses, you know, a, ru a rush to uh, judgment and, and finding a solution before uh, accurately uh, defining the question and, and defining the problem that people are trying to solve. Um, so, uh, and, and, I, and I think, you know, we can look back in history and of course, hind uh, hindsight certainly is an enabler, on, uh, but there are there are times when I think the pre-mortem approach uh, would have helped us uh, before we, you know, uh, intervened in, in various places and, and came up with uh, a, a solution that really wasn't uh, a solution set that really wasn't uh, scrutinized as fully as it should have been. So I know our audience is, is listening and, and especially those who are old enough to remember Vietnam and talk about you know, pre-site and, and learning lessons of, of history and that sort of thing, which obviously we, we didn't do here. Um, and there's a lot of frustration in the ranks. You know, you have lieutenant colonels lighting themselves on fire professionally on social media uh, because they demand accountability. I know from um, some Marine JOs that I've heard from, particularly with his first video that Lieutenant Colonel Scheller put out, that the the deck plates felt kind of that that was the case, right? That there was no accountability and that this was mismanaged for years and a lot of blood and treasure and to what end. So to apply the recommendations here specifically to the war in Afghanistan, and you just mentioned the group dynamic piece, we've all been in those staff meetings. We've all been in planning sessions uh, in, in various ways over the years and seeing some of this where maybe the boss just gives you the look where, okay, it's time to stop dissenting and now just go do, right? It's your job, commander, to carry out what I just told you to do and now stop pushing back on me. So how, how do we temper the ill effects of group dynamics to get this right the next time? And I guess I'm asking specifically, at what point – during the war in Afghanistan, might we have applied these precepts effectively and had a better outcome? Um, I have a couple of ideas on, uh, and thoughts on your question there. Uh, I think one of the things that we need to double down on 
is our, our joint educational programs. Uh, we, you know, all the services uh, have have invested heavily in professional military education, um, and most officers have an opportunity to go to uh, you know school at at various uh, levels of throughout their career to include you know top level school when you make 0506 and um, and I think uh, we're blessed with some really outstanding institutions of higher military learning. What I would like to see, and, and I think we need sorely, particularly at the National War College, Army War College, Naval War College, is I firmly believe we need to expand the number of civilian public servants from the interagency that, that go to those those year long courses. Uh, you get you get one or two, you know, from the State Department and the intel community and, you know, across uh, there are smattering from uh, a very small smattering from across the interagency. We need to figure out ways to increase that capacity by about tenfold because there needs to be a more level understanding between civilian policymakers and 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 those of us that have are in uniform or have worn the uniform about about the the advantages and disadvantages and the capabilities and the limitations of, of military power you know across the spectrum of conflict whether it's high-end mid-intensity or or you know uh, lower spectrum sort of uh, interventions and right now i don't i don't i think we have a very we have it's very imbalanced and and so the conversations are frequently stilted uh and uh the, the, a lot of military officers aren't exposed to the finer points of diplomacy and foreign policy and, and vice versa. That's true also. Um, number two is uh, how, how, what, how do we exit from, you know, what, what does success look like? I know that's, that's kind of a cliche, but um, as Frederick Clay said, in, I think I could say this in the article, one of his themes in his book was, it's much easier to get into these wars and conflicts than it is to get out of them. So I, I don't advocate necessarily having a, an exit strategy. On the day you intervene, it's very unrealistic to know precisely what your your exit strategy is going to be. But you should certainly you should certainly have a framework of what what success is going to look like, and and give some thought to uh, how you'll draw down your presence and, and your force levels. Um, I think, you know, in Iraq where I served twice, I did two tours in Iraq. I, th I think there's been, you know, countless books written on this, this issue, but it was, it was the phase four or the post conflict aspects of stabilization operations that, uh, were insufficiently planned out, you know, before, before, uh, we went into Iraq. And, um, and so we, we paid a price for that. Now, you can juxtapose that to post-war planning at the end of World War II, where there was extensive planning on um, the occupation of post-war Germany and, and, and all the, uh, the whole of government approaches to getting the, the German uh, civil service and, and government uh, in occupied Germany back on its feet, you know, with the uh, the, the General Lucius Clay, I think, was 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 the first commander there. But I mean, that effort had gone on for a couple of years before the end of World War Two. So um, uh, as much effort needs to go into to 
ending these wars as as beginning them. Uh, so I, I it it goes directly to I think your question, and and so I think part part of uh, uh, finding solutions to to this challenge in, in the educational process, I think it would uh, would also be uh, acquainting students both in uniform and civilian suits of something, uh, an idea, a simple but powerful idea that the late Secretary of State George Salt uh, mentioned at, toward the end of his life, a World War II Marine with, you know, just an acclaimed uh, and outstanding uh, lifetime of service to our country, which George Schultz equated diplomacy and foreign policy making to gardening. Uh, and that's an activity that he said really is endless because as a gardener, you're always weeding you're composting, you're harvesting, and you're replanting. And even during the winter months, you know, a gardener's ordering new seeds, designing the layout of his or her growing beds, and otherwise scheming to have more productive season than last year. Uh, and so he was, his point was gardening and, and diplomacy are a continuous process. They never really end. I kind of look at national security and national defense the same way. There's no finality. There's really not a finality to it anymore. There, there was when you're talking about wars of annihilation and total war, but uh, in this in this context, it's it's elusive, and that's where the title of my article comes from. So the next set of weeds or pests or disease come along, and the gardener's right back into a maintenance cycle, and so whatever success you you have is is pretty fleeting. And I think if we can sort of imbue the late secretary George Schultz's view on this into some of our schools uh, at, at an earlier uh, at earlier stages of officers' careers, uh, perhaps there'll be less disenchantment than uh, the lieutenant colonel that you just cited. That's a great point. Of course, the analogy of uh, of constantly gardening and tending to weeds is not nearly as sexy as the touchdown at the football game, but it, it's perhaps a much I more, think it's more accurate. It's yeah. a more accurate and more apt. Yeah. And I think the other half of the equation, Tom, that needs to understand that besides the you know mid grade officer corps that enters their professional military education cycle is State Department and political appointees need to understand that as we start to scrutinize defense budgets and we talk about presence and over the horizon capability and that sort of thing. Um, it's not singular. It's, and I think this is where the high end fight is kind of a Thucydides trap when we frame everything against the Pacific pivot and the high end fight against the thing we did for the previous 20 years and which informed, you know, the next page of the QDR, which was asymmetric war. I know what they I know why they did that as sort of a marketing hook to make it make sense as we push defense budgets but we need to set an expectation that this threat to your point of gardening is not going away you know and and until we get that in the national psyche um we we risk the idea that we kneecap ourselves and we talk about bringing the troops home and all these other, you know, when I heard that, I just wanted to pull my hair out because it's like the troops aren't coming home. They're just going somewhere else. You know, right, I mean, right. nobody's op tempo has gone down because of the Afghan pullout, you know, right. carriers are still going on 10 month cruises and so forth and so on. So uh, I think we need, as well as your point with PME, we need to, I don't know what we means in this context, but the nation writ large, particularly those who make political decisions and those in power in D.C. need to also understand the wisdom resident in this article. 
I couldn't agree more. And I think uh, an aspect of that is we have not seriously had, had had extensive, robust conversations about about nuclear forces, right? Which are when you're talking about competing against another nuclear adversary, have to be a part of the conversation. But we haven't had to worry about that for the last 20 years. Um, and so understanding that, you know, counterinsurgency in the operating environment you're in is that operating environment is fundamentally different than great power competition is is probably a good place just for people to start. Our guest today has been Colonel Thomas Greenwood, U.S. Marine Corps, retired. The article is called The Elusive Quest for Victory in War. It's in the October issue of Proceedings, starting on page 60 and 61. Tom, thanks for being with us today, and thanks for writing for Proceedings. My pleasure. Thank you all. Well, until next week, that wraps up this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Or maybe we should say... Success. Success begins at the Naval Institute. The answer to how war might occur and how it should be fought (laughs) and for what ends begins at the Naval Institute. Not quite as snappy. But uh, maybe we'll have to work on that. We'll see you again soon.